0: broad expanse of time, you know, makes that our, this moment that we're living in all that much more meaningful. You know, it's like, wow, you know, we've got, we've got this time on earth, let's do something with it.
1: Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the PASS Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. So I am super excited today on Learning Unboxed because we have a guest who has been a bit of a legend for me over a number of years because I was first introduced to Andy Farkey, who's joining us today um, when I went to work in Armour, South Dakota on a school's project. And the reason I was introduced to Andy way back when was because he was sort of a legend in the small rural community in the school because of the amazing things that he went off to do. And today we get to talk um, with Andy about his work as a paleontologist, educator, who works with dinosaurs but involves high school students in the scientific research process. And that is so near and dear to my heart, I just can almost bow down and be grateful to Andy and his work. And so Andy is a paleontologist with the ALF Museum, and he will explain the work that at the Alp Museum and the Web School, and his own field work and interest um, with students—how um, that all sort of comes together. So, Andy, welcome to the program.
0: Thanks. It's great to be here. You know, what I do is I'm a paleontologist, I'm an educator, um, and I have just like the best uh, job on the planet. You know, I get to work at a museum where we're making, you know, new scientific discoveries all of the time. But, you know, even more exciting than that is we have high school students involved in every step of the process. So the Raymond Elf Museum of Paleontology in Claremont, California, is unique in that we're the only nationally accredited natural history museum, paleontology museum, uh, that's located on a high school campus campus and that's the campus of the web schools. You know, we have the students, you know, do everything with us as part of the process. So they go out in the field with us to find new fossils, they help uh, clean them and conserve them in our fossil preparation lab. They are helping and in many cases you know outright doing the research on these fossils to understand what they mean and then uh, you know taking it out there into the world you know through through telling uh, people about it through events for the general public but also by uh, presenting at major scientific conferences and publishing in peer-reviewed scientific journals.
1: So that's the piece of this that I love so much. So uh, lots of folks who listen have heard me mention before my background as a research scientist, as an underwater archaeologist, and so very, very similar in the sense that the thing that gets me jazzed is that you've made a point in the way this whole arrangement Works to say that high school kiddos not only could benefit from, hey, being part of what's going on, but more importantly, actually have real roles, Mm -hmm. meaningful roles, not just busy work, not just, Mm -hmm. hey, let me show you a career. But honest to goodness, I believe that you're capable of doing this. And if you're not, I'm going to teach it to you and we're going to off and run and you're really going to be part of my team. Mm -hmm. Has that, so tell us a little bit of the context piece. So which came first, the ALF Museum or the Web School? And then how did those two sort of get connected together? Because you're right, it's amazing that the museum and the high school are all kind of one and the same in that Mm -hmm. sense. So help the listeners understand the context piece, because I think that that obviously has influenced so much of what you're able to do as it relates to having these kids very much by design deliberately part of your team.
0: Yeah, so our museum was founded by its namesake, uh, Dr. Ray Elf. Uh, He was uh, came to Webb as a science teacher back in the 1920s, 1929, Mm. and uh, he taught. I mean, because it was you know a small school then, and still a small school, you know, he did a little bit of everything. He taught science, Mm. he taught math, he, you know, coached uh, some some sports. But one thing he was really increasingly interested in was uh you know the the world around him so he was an amateur astronomer he built a a telescope you know by, by hand in the <laughs> 1930s um and he was also uh increasingly fascinated by you know fossils you know so these what he called uh, documents of life I love so, that that yeah. is a
1: great way to think about it that's spectacular
0: yeah yeah and he, I mean he had he was just a master educator you know I have I have talked mm-hmm. with uh, students that had him you know in some cases 50 60 years after they you know they had him as a teacher mm-hmm. and they still just remember him as you know someone very dynamic uh, someone who really had a gift for teaching difficult concepts and, and who had a gift for making students feel their part in the bigger picture um, you know, one of the one of the questions he would always ask is, you know, what are you going to do with your moment of time um, when you wow. look back across this vast <laughs> geological span of time? And you know, his way of, of placing us in that moment of time was to go back in time by collecting fossils. So in the 1930s, uh, 1936, he was out in the Mojave Desert with some students, and they found a uh, skull of an animal that turned out to be a species that was new to science. Um wow. it was a type of peccary or javelina, a pig like animal. Um, that was given the scientific name of Diziohias frickei. And this uh, discovery and a few others that they made around that same time really energized Elf and got him thinking about you know the role that fossil collecting and fossils mm-hmm. and you know the study of geology and evolution um, could really be an educational vehicle for his students. Um, so they uh, started going on these these things called Peccary trips, you know, named after that first fossil mm-hmm. they found. And uh, it's you know one thing led to another. They started building this big fossil collection uh some of which had you know some real scientific significance and you know many of his students were inspired to go on to Careers in the sciences, engineering, and other fields, and even those students um, that didn't necessarily go into the sciences. You know, a lot of them talk about how, you know, having that bigger perspective, mm-hmm. you know, it really mm-hmm. has grounded them and given them, you know, a different way of looking at the world. Um, so that's how that got started. And then our museum building itself was built in the late 1960s. After um, and then after Alf retired, the museum was was professionalized, really from being a personal collection mm-hmm. um, to something, you know, that's that's a much broader scientific facility. So that includes, you know, having all the, you know, the proper storage cabinets and technology for that, having the, the labs and the staffing and all that um, to really, you know, make it not just a, a, you know, an educational collection, but something that's a scientific collection for, you know, for the outside world too.
1: That is absolutely awesome. And I'm so jealous. I mean, I am truly, truly jealous. You know, as one who loved my own scientific field and mm-hmm. re- field research and engaging with the, the the act of discovery and the unknown, right? So to me, that's that's the passionate part. That's the reason I went into what I did because I loved I loved the digging, I loved the discovery, mm-hmm. and but I also loved, and I suspect I'm, I'm gathering that this is part of sort of your persona as well. I loved the sharing. Of that knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That the teaching, so the learning from myself as a professional, but the and the, the teaching of my students, but mm-hmm. also the learning that I got from mm-hmm. my students as they learned how mm-hmm. to figure this stuff all out. Yeah, um, those were some of the my very best days in yeah. the field. Right? Yeah. Um, so, so, so I, I totally love and appreciate that. So, as the so the web school came first, and then the museum was mm-hmm. built around this great, phenomenal teacher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have no doubt that there have been fabulous teachers in your experience that sort of helped you along the way. I can certainly say the same. And, mm-hmm. I th- and I think that that story that you shared about, you know, these students all these years later, that there's something to be said about not just a dynamic teacher, but a dynamic environment where you have the opportunity to grow and to explore. And one mm-hmm. of the things that I loved about what you put in the bio information that you sent over um, for our interview was the fact that you recognize that not every kid that you interact with is going to be a paleontologist, nor Mm. is it even your goal to make them a paleontologist, but, but the experience is giving them so much more. So Mm -hmm. I guess that one of the things that I would really love to sort of dig in a little bit is when the students come and they actually get to sit down and start working on a particular project with you, Mm -hmm. what, how do you lay that all out? How do you help the kids or do they just come to it because they're at the web school and the museum is there that they naturally by design understand what their role is going to be or Mm -hmm. what's the process? How do you make sure they're ready for the experience you're about to give them?
0: Yeah, so it's... it's a multi-year process, really. So, as uh, so, Web is an independent school, um, mm-hmm. which means we have some flexibility around curriculum. Even though you know we're aligned with you know in the science curriculum with you know the Next Gen standards and those mm-hmm. those sorts of things, we have a lot of leeway in how we do that. So th- it's uh, really exciting that we're able to, as part of our ninth grade uh, science curriculum, it's of course the biology class that many right, you know many yep. schools have as ninth graders. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an evolutionary biology class, um, you know, and really, you know, there's there's you know, I always think of you know biology best makes sense if you're looking at it through the lens of evolution because that explains the diversity of life and all these biological systems. Um, And one really important piece of evidence for evolution um, is through paleontology, the study Mm -hmm. of fossils. Mm -hmm. And so we start students with basically just, you know, every student, here gets exposed to a couple of weeks of paleontology you know as a ninth grader and they see how it fits in with the broader science of biology and what you know looking at, at uh, you know transitions in the fossil record say about you know about how life has evolved you know we do a, a short field trip where they go out you mm-hmm. know for an overnight trip to collect fossils and see like you know oh we've talked about horse evolution look I just found you know a toe bone from a, a three-toed horse you know how mm-hmm. cool is that so you know they're really seeing that um, and seeing that that aspect of science and discovery in action and then for students that want to go in a little more depth uh, they have as an, an option as 10th or 11th graders to take a, a year-long uh, course sequence the first of which is, is uh, it's an honors paleontology class so mm-hmm. they start digging into more of the, the details of what paleontology is as a science you know a little more depth on the history of Earth um, but also alongside that we talk a lot about you know maybe the things you don't think about on uh, necessarily automatically on the sciences so things like how does a museum run you know not just you know like how do we take care of collections that's important but Mm -hmm. what are the ethics of it so we start bringing Mm -hmm. in all these topics of like well what's what are the laws you know in the u.s or internationally that govern how we collect fossils you know who should have ownership of fossils if anyone Mm -hmm. should have ownership of fossils you know what are what are all those you know things like what's what are the ethics of a museum you know should a museum like you know if it starts running short on money, should it be able to sell its collections is that mm-hmm. how does that fit in with the definition of a museum? So we talk about all those sorts of things um you know that that are of course related to paleontology, but also you know speak to broader issues you know in society and culture in the world uh, so they start to see that it's not you know my my goal is they see it you know I'm not just a scientist you know who's sitting behind a microscope like I have to think about these these. Mm-hmm. Ways that I engage with the rest of the world, you know, because honestly, as a museum, like if we want support from our donors or whatever organizations support us, we have to, you know, really make a case for, you know, what we do, why we're important. You know, it's easy to, you know, relatively easy, in, in the best cases, to get money to like do a new exhibit, um, right? But. A museum that's only exhibits isn't really fulfilling its mission as a museum. Mm-hmm. You have to have that collection behind it. You have to have that research behind it. And so, you know, we talk about how all that relates into the broader museum culture. So that's the first uh, the first semester, and then the second semester is a basically an introduction to research. So the students learn how to read a scientific paper, how to give a basic uh, journal club mm-hmm. presentation. So they'll read something from the peer reviewed literature, summarize it. They'll do some basic introductory research projects. To learn how to write um, scientifically and what goes into that and how that's different from maybe an essay that they've written and you know in one mm-hmm. of their humanities classes um, and also with that of course we have a you know another strong ethics component because I think it's really important to have those conversations so we talk about you know some of the some of the topics like, you know, who 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 does research belong to? What is the right. What are the ethics of peer review? You know, like, say mm-hmm. I've been sent a paper by that's written by my friend to peer review. Is it ethical for me to, to review that? You know, and what are the boundaries? Right. So we talk about those things, and a lot of these are things that tie in with, you know, maybe what these ex, those students are experiencing as teenagers, you know, things about mm-hmm. academic honesty, things about, you know, how do you relate mm-hmm. to your peers? Um, so again, that that little bit of relevance there for them. So, you know, they're getting this scientific training, this, you know, training really thinking about what are the ethics and the the bigger picture of being a scientist. And then for those students that want to continue on in the program, then they have, uh, can take up to two years of an advanced research course where they're working with me or one of our other museum scientists on a, uh, some, some new piece, uh, pu- hopefully publishable piece of scientific mm-hmm. research. So maybe it's a fossil that the student found on one of our summer expeditions. Maybe it's something that's been sitting in one of our cabinets at the museum. So we're like, okay, this is a fossil. We don't know much about it. We've done, gone through the scientific literature. Nobody knows much about this topic. It's on you now to to mm-hmm. figure it out, and so we'll guide mm-hmm. them. We'll help them get up to speed on you know kind of the the important bit of literature that they need to know, the background work, and then help them do the research. Whether that's measuring specimens, whether that's analyzing CAT scans, uh, whether that's maybe looking for more fossils in the field, and then um, you know if all works out well, you know taking that research to a conference and maybe onto a peer reviewed paper. So, really, walking by them you know every step of the way, but also giving them a lot of freedom to mm-hmm. you know to to run up against those those dead ends to you know see the frustrations you know of like oh i've you know i i I've measured you know five hundred teeth. And it turns out there's no significant results. You're like, you know, we didn't, exactly. you know, it's like, that's, that's real science. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the real world of science, yes. right? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And, and that's, uh, you know, for me, that's the, you know, although it's really exciting, like when the student is a co-author on a paper that's published mm-hmm. or when I see them at a conference, I think it's just as important that they see like, oh, science isn't just like, Go to a textbook and look up an answer. Or it's not like, mm-hmm. oh, I had, you know, every day is a eureka moment in the lab at 2 a.m., you know, that's, you know, right. which is another, me- uh, you know, sort of way of looking at science that they often see in pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want them to mm-hmm. see that, like, sometimes there's excitement, but sometimes there might be weeks or months of, you know, just got to slog through it. <laughs> yep,
1: absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. I've been there, done that many, many times. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well yeah. I just love that and I love it's this this is the sort of epitome I guess if you will of the notion of high school capstone or mm-hmm. research internship that it's just saying at the very highest level we're not just asking you to participate we're asking mm-hmm. you to contribute yeah. and I think that's a fundamental difference mm-hmm. in what is going to be a successful, immersive experience for a student, right? Mm -hmm. And that's certainly the piece that we advocate for and have for many, many years it passed. But I do think that it's intriguing to me how often uh, educators generally and i am i'm i'm talking about our you know our post secondary colleagues as well as our avocational um colleagues and and our traditional school teachers i'm using educators to to be all encompassing mm-hmm. in that sense we often get stuck in the notion that because we've always taught x this way or we've mm-hmm. used this particular curriculum um, you know i love your example of their biology course you know the standards in biology although they have they have evolved over time it's largely the same are the mm-hmm. foundational pieces of the science we know and yet oftentimes what we find in schools especially in schools that are struggling to engage students in science if you step back from it there's two things that tend to be happening. One is you don't have a dynamic science teacher mm-hmm. or, a, or or a teacher who is so passionate about the content or one piece of the content that you know the kids sort of peel the passion off, right? They mm-hmm. they know that you love this Andy and so yeah. when when they hang out with you there's no question in their mind that you want to be there.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Right. And that matters. Kids know this stuff. Yeah. And and then the other thing I see is that folks have not taken on a sense of freedom. And sometimes it's environmental. It's the place you're teaching or the place you're working mm-hmm. or the museum you're in, right? That are so constrained that you can't take the content and make it relevant mm-hmm. to those kids right now. So yeah. to your point. So I think oftentimes when I look at stale programs, those are the things that I see, I guess if mm-hmm. you will, right? Yeah. So from from your experience, you know, other than tapping into the thing that you know and love, how how could you help others who want to be able to, to teach no matter what it is, whether it's mm-hmm. paleontology or it's fashion design or it's marketing? It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, you found creative ways to sort of tap into the here mm-hmm. and now and yet people are afraid to do that mm-hmm. so what would your advice be in that space
0: wow that's a big question it uh, is a
1: big question and yeah. i ask it because you didn't come to this andy as an educator you came to this as a paleontology mm-hmm. who a paleontologist who loves to teach clearly yeah, yeah. and and i think sometimes so, so, this is my theory. I have mm-hmm. a theory, I guess yep. so I, I want to play my theory out with you. So, my theory is that we need to be able to find a way to help teachers tap into the passion of folks who love what they do but don't teach. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we needed to help those folks who are incredibly passionate about stuff and help them learn how to teach others, even if mm-hmm. it's one or two. It doesn't have to be in a traditional classroom setting. Yeah, There's, there's magic in the moment mm-hmm. where... Somebody can mentor somebody else to love what they love, yeah, I guess that's what I'm getting at. How do we get to that magical moment in a variety of settings? and you don't have to have the answer, but I know you have insights because you're living this,
0: yeah, so I think one thing that's really helped me is you know i I am really fortunate to have some amazing colleagues here, you know, not just at the museum but at the school, and mm-hmm. you know they're not you know some of them in science, some of them in other departments, and mm-hmm. so you know just. To, you know chatting with them to see like what makes you tick you know like you're you're, you're humanities <laughs> teacher what is it that like Clearly good at it, you know. You have the students energy, energized in your classroom. Like, uh-huh. what? What is it? Like, what is it that you know makes you tick? And often mm-hmm. it's that that background passion, that excitement. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's coming from you know just having that that experience in the field, that proficiency in the field. I and mean, that's why I'm a big advocate of mm-hmm. you know creating opportunities for educators you know to either go back to you know what their original topic of of study was, you know, if they were a biology major, mm-hmm. you know, in college or when Ever being able to, to go back and do that, or you know, if they have you know still some some continued you know engagement with the field, you know, being able to just create those opportunities, you know. So I've I've got some uh, some colleagues out there. Um, there's a there's a great program uh, through the University of Washington where they they have uh, educators go out in the field with them to collect mm-hmm. um, to collect fossils, and I think those sorts yeah. of experiences as professional development and professional growth are really important. One thing that makes me you know, really, I think excited and continue to be excited is I'm. I have the ability to be professionally engaged as a scientist. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I'm. I'm of course I'm an educator, but also you know I'm an active research scientist involved with my professional societies and you know working with these students to make new discoveries. Um, but that's a lot of what you know keeps me motivated and keeps me mm-hmm. excited is being able to have that freedom. To do that, and I, of course, absolutely recognize depending on circumstances of schools or Mm -hmm. background, that's not always possible. But I think ways to, you know, creating ways for those sorts of opportunities for educators to, uh, you know, to to tap into that excitement, you know, Mm -hmm. that that kind of what's current in the field, like that's so so important. So that's one thing that you know I think is important is just you know stay engaged as possible, you know, in the in the dirt, uh, whatever that dirt is for the (laughs) for your field.
1: Yeah. That's a a really interesting way for you to put it. And I truly, truly appreciate that. And although I have recognized it, I hadn't had anybody put voice to that. But I I like the notion of encouraging our educators. So folks who come from, to your point, from those variety of different things that they teach, whether it's language arts or mathematics or uh, some type of science, doesn't make any difference. And you know and through folks who come into teaching through education and not necessarily through through whatever that content component of it is I think often what might happen and I don't again a theory I don't know that this is the case but I'm curious about it because of the way you put it so I do appreciate mm-hmm. that you know one of the things that might that might be a sticking point is you know you have so much invested in your profession outside of the teaching, so the science piece. Again, you mentioned your professional association. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, teachers are members of associations or groups that are tied to teaching, but not Mm -hmm. necessarily their content component Mm -hmm. in the truest sense. And I wonder if there's a connection there, right? I became a math teacher because I like math and I want to teach and I like kids. But is there a component of math that I'm passionate about? And Mm -hmm. could I figure out how to tap into that as a mechanism to inspire and help teach my kids. And I wonder if maybe, maybe that's one of those little levers that mm-hmm. we need to spend a little bit more time giving traditional educators permission to invest in their, their content piece of their field, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. For the inspiration and the passion.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely because I think it's that inspiration and that passion that, you know, when I think back to some of the best, you know, or most engaging teachers I've had over the years, like they were, mm-hmm. you know, even if even if they didn't have a PhD in the field, you know, they had a, mm-hmm. you know, a natural passion for it and you know, if someone's excited about something, they can get it's a lot easier to get students excited about it too.
1: You know, we used to have these post it notes that we used to have printed, and we would take them to every teacher professional development workshop that we did. And they, what they said on them was, Teach your passion. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And we would start there. And, you know, that was the thing that we saw too is like, I don't care that you're the math teacher. Maybe, maybe you're the math teacher and you are a whiz at knitting. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. For starters, knitting is nothing but mathematics, all played out, right? Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, so, How to get you jazzed? Take that thing that you love, and let's see if we can help it be at least a springboard with your students. Because to your point, kids know whether they're little kids or they're older kids, they know when you Mm -hmm. are so completely jazzed and into what it is that you're teaching them, Mm -hmm. right?
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing with that too is you know it comes you know from you know showing you know maybe that I'm not always the expert, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know letting the you know I, I almost would use the phrase you know like you know showing. The vulnerabilities, you know, that I have as as a human and as a you know as and as a scientist, you know, and I think that's where I think especially high school students they off you know we're all pretty cynical when we're teenagers and many of us are. I remember being you know I knew so much about the world you know when I was 18 years old and and you know it was all just you know it was all just you know everyone was you know trying to sell me a line and I think you know one thing that resonates that I found with the teenagers that I work with is you know if they like. Oh wait, scientists don't actually know all this. Like, oh, there's, there's, there's something that's like less than perfect, <laughs> and you know that mm-hmm. often resonates and gets them excited. In fact, I remember this is a, a few years back. One of my students actually had a uh, a score chart that he was keeping of times Dr. Farkey was wrong, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know this this was, this was a you know student really motivated. Uh, but we had this just like this great relationship where mm-hmm. you know it wasn't subversive in any way, but it was very much you know kind of a like you know. There, you just said something like, "I'm not sure that's right." Let's, you know, and so we would he would challenge challenge me, and he'd be like, "Oh, I just found this in the literature that you know extends what we were just talking about, you know, things like that." And okay, we're going to add another tick mark, you know, <laughs> to this score chart I'm keeping. Um, so things like that. I think it's really you know being able to uh, to say, "I don't know," or you know, mm-hmm. "Let's check this out," or "Oh, I was wrong about this." I think that often resonates well, especially as you get to more advanced science learners, you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, really, that's what the process of science is, is saying, I don't know this, you know, let's mm-hmm. find out or, oh, this seems weird. Does that, could that be right? And I think having those sorts of, you know, relationships, you know, no matter what the class size is, that, uh, you know, a lot of what teaching is, is, is about relationship building, you know, that, that has to come in order to get, you know, student trust and, you know, student engagement. If there's not that relationship there, they're you know, they're not necessarily seeing you, you know, on that on that level as you know someone that's figuring it out alongside them. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be harder to get that trust.
1: It really can. And the reality of it is, and again, like I said, from years and years of being in you know, so many different classrooms and communities, um, that was one of the pieces that we we have seen over and over again. And it becomes almost one of those Kevlar threads around mm-hmm. when you step back and think about those great, amazing, successful teachers who, to your point, 50 and 60 years after the fact, they remember that teacher. Mm-hmm. And if you really dig in, what you discover is that that teacher was fearless, right? They (laughs) believed without... Question in the kids that they were teaching that they were capable of so many different things and to go on a journey with them rather than just absorbing information mm-hmm. and I think that that's a lot of the big difference and certainly some of those pieces that I feel very strongly about. You know, the other thing that I am really curious about because like, here's what I can imagine. You know, folks are sitting back listening to this, they're like, "Oh my gosh, um, you know, Andy, Dr. Farkey, he's got he 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 is he's inspiring. Like, I want to be a teacher like." That Right. And mm-hmm. how do I tap into some of those pieces? But, you know, I'm not in a community that has a school that, that provides as many of those types of free opportunities. Um, I, you know, I don't have a museum sitting on my campus, but I'm really, really passionate about X, Y, or Z. And so I want to start, I want to mm-hmm. start transitioning the way my students think and plan and how how do I go about doing that? I always like to sort of as we wrap a program, think about the things that people are sitting back listening, saying, gosh, I could do that, but
0: yeah. And that's that's another big question. That's one I, I think about a lot. You know, I'm very cognizant of the fact that mm-hmm. not every school, in fact, very, very, very few schools have a museum on their campus. Not everyone can just walk down the hallway and pull out a drawer of a new species of of you know mm-hmm. dinosaur or something like that. But I think, you know, one way that things are getting maybe a little more accessible is you know as more museums bring their collections online and not just museums but other sorts of you know cultural institutions and mm-hmm. and research institutions and such there's a lot of ways to engage with that primary material and i think i think really for for me it comes down to you know engaging not at the necessarily at the textbook level although textbooks are useful and really great mm-hmm. to get a foundation but going to that level you know, where the textbook information is coming from. And then even below that to the, you know, like, here's the the actual data. And I think getting into those sorts of resources where possible, um, it's been really inspiring for me as a teacher. Um, And I think it's something that is hopefully... You know with within whatever lo- local limitations there are um is something that can be adopted um you know whether it's looking at you know three d scans of a fossil online or reading a a journal mm-hmm. article because um, there are a lot more journals now that are making their you know their their research available you know online in in a way that that's at at low cost or no cost also I think you know there's different forums where you know you can you can point motivated students to to mm-hmm. engage with professionals um, yeah as a professional that's sometimes contacted by students outside oh, you know, yeah. that's something that's mm-hmm. you know I, I always advocate with caution because you know I've seen it go off the rails in all sorts of ways um, you know I think you know, that kind of communication with experts requires some some guidance from the teacher, not just saying, go ask a scientist five questions. but
1: Right. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, you can get that student that is relentless and, you know, you just, yeah, absolutely. Which on the one hand you love, but on the other hand, right, you know, within uh, moderation. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah.
0: But yeah, I think I think really engaging with those uh, and and seeking out those you know those building blocks of of our knowledge, you know whether that's you know the the museum that has their paintings online or their mm-hmm. you know the museum that has scans of fossils online. Um, there's some great databases out there where you, you type in your geographic location, like what fossils were found in our backyard yep, here. exactly. And, and then that leads into well, what you know? Hey, we're finding you know we're in the middle of south dakota why are we finding all these marine fish you know mm-hmm. outside here because there's it's a lot of uh, you know like cornfields and, and and you know hog facilities yep. Kind of yep we don't we don't have uh, oysters you know hanging around today so we and so that kind of that can be a way to to really you know make it personal and I would say that's the other thing is you know find find the ways that make it personal, make it local. Mm-hmm. You know one of the things when I was a student that always inspired me wasn't necessarily reading about a discovery, you know down in Argentina or a discovery over in China, but like what is the discovery that just came out of my backyard? You know yeah. whether it's uh you know a fossil, you know the, the famous fossil that was found, you know fifty miles away, or maybe you know a, a Regional university that you know some researcher just made a discovery. So I think finding those, uh, those sort of local, you know, personal connections can make a big difference too. And often those are good places to tap for resources. Um, you know, for you know, as you know, for you know, getting kind of beyond the textbook.
1: And they're also a great opportunity for students to understand how the work that they do, whatever that happens to be, could be tied to a community and benefit a local community. Yes. That's the other thing that I love about that approach is oftentimes we think about science in particular, but we also see in other fields. But I would say science, for better or worse, is often the, the, the victim or the perpetrator, take your pick, right, mm-hmm. of some of that ethos that says this is about something huge. It's not about any small or individualized mm-hmm. place. And sometimes we forget, to your point, that it it starts someplace. Yeah. The seed of whatever, it doesn't matter which field of science you choose, it has Mm -hmm. a beginning and a certain place and that Mm -hmm. certain place has meaning to the entire sort of sets of events and one event that builds on another that's tied to whatever that thing is. And we often forget to help the students understand that it's right here to mm-hmm. your point. It's in my backyard. Yeah. It's meaningful. It has to do with me. It has to do with my neighbors. Yeah. And oh, by the way, I can have a role in that.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think also the, you know, that with those sort of personal connections, you know, being able to show how all of this stuff is relevant, no mm-hmm. matter Across what career you go into. And, you know, coming back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, you know, it's, I don't particularly care if my students go into paleontology. Like, I, I love it. I'll be proud of them mm-hmm. if they do that. Um, mm-hmm. but honestly, like, that's not my goal. My goal is not to crank out another 20 or 30 or 50 or a hundred paleontologists. In fact, that's kind of the worst case scenario. Exactly. Um, Where
1: would they work? Right?
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and, uh, And what I want, though, is my my students, no matter what they do, um, to go out into the world and be people that, uh, whatever their field is, whether they're going into you know they're owning their own business or whether they're going into public service or they're going into medicine or engineering or whatever it is, you know, they can they can say like you know they'll they'll see something on the news and say oh like. I understand a little about how the mm. scientific process happened, or you know, there maybe there's a, a local issue coming up in an election that has something mm-hmm. to do, you know, a ballot issue that has some scientific links. They can say, "Oh, like I can, I can like feel a little bit comfortable reading into this," or you know, no, ma- no matter what it is that they, you know, they understand what science is. How the process works, and you know maybe not be so intimidated when they see you know someone with a PhD behind their name. It's like oh mm-hmm. yeah, well th- this is the process. That's how they got their PhD, and this is how they're an expert in this field. And this is the limitations of that expertise. And this is the mm-hmm. you know where they're really they have some authority to speak. So I think it's really you know just giving people. Uh, People in general, not just scientists, but people, tools, um, you know, to look at the world and also, you know, beyond just like that practical stuff, just like looking at the world and getting excited about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because how cool is it, you know, that, you know, there's places where you go out and you can pick up a fossil of an animal that lived 50 million years ago, you know, and, and, you know, to have that connection. And you know, getting back to what Ray Elf was talking about with our moment in time, you know, like one of the things that I really try and tell my students, and and this goes back to Ray Elf's philosophy, is you know, we look at this the the age of the universe, you know, the age of the earth. You know, we have billions of years worth of earth's history. If you're, you know, if you're gonna be really nihilistic about it, like, oh wow, I'm really insignificant in line mm-hmm. of that. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. But, you know, that's 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 you know, I think not the case at all. You know, like we I think that broad expanse of time. You know makes that our this moment that we're living in all that much more meaningful, you know it's mm-hmm. like, wow, you know we've got we've got this time on Earth, let's do something with it, mm-hmm. you know make, mm-hmm. take advantage of it, and you know don't be intimidated by this idea of of big expanses of time because you know we're part of that, we're part mm-hmm. of that story of earth, and you know we can do a lot of good and you know reach a lot of people you know on that in that time on our planet with that moment of time.
1: You well, know, at the end of the day. Whether you articulate it that way or not, you are you are crafting stewards of the earth, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, your students who go through this program and get to have this fabulous experience with you—back to your point—whether they become a paleontologist or not, they are good stewards of the earth because mm-hmm. of the experience that they shared with you. So, absolutely. Um, Bravo for that, uh, Andy. And thank you so much for giving us um, some of your time, sharing your story and your experiences. Thanks. I have no doubt that there will be others who are just as excited about the work that you're doing um, <laughs> that I am. So thank you for sharing with us today.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back and lean in to reimagine education.